All right, well, there's a lot of good news in this passage this morning. And I promise you that we're going to spend the bulk, the vast majority of this time on the good news that is here for us in Christ Jesus. But in order to appreciate the good news that is here, I'm going to take us low for a minute. I'm going to take us low. We're going to talk about anxiety a little bit this morning. The, the title of this series is An Ancient Church in an Anxious Age. And we do live in an anxious age. We don't just live in an anxious age. We live as people, as individuals, and collectively, even as a church, as anxious people, oftentimes. There are many reasons for our anxiousness right now. I just want to consider three areas of life where we feel the anxiety sometimes. Think about your family life. Maybe it's, it's an aging parent right now. You're, you're wondering how to care for them. Maybe one of your children is going through a hard time in school or just in general, and it's causing anxiety. Maybe you have a long-standing kind of conflict going on in your marriage where you just don't know how to move beyond it. You want to get married because you feel really lonely, or maybe you have gotten married and you still feel very lonely. Um, you have financial concerns. You have an unexpected diagnosis. We experience anxiety for real in our family lives. Think about not just our family, but our country. If you're black right now, you wonder what your future is going to be like in America and the future of your children. If you're white right now, you wonder what your future is going to be like for you and for your children. If you're Chinese right now, you wonder what your future is going to be like for you and your children. If you're a minority or you are a refugee or you're an immigrant or you have to purchase your own health care, you wonder what your future is going to be like for you and for your family. If you're on the left, you look at the right and you, you don't understand how the right can be where they are. And if you're on the right, you look at the left and you don't understand how the left can be where they are. And we experience that anxiety as a nation. If you're a Christian, you wonder about and worry about your future in America. If you're a Christian who has children or grandchildren, you worry about their future as a Christian in America. Let's think about the church. Right now, tons of exposés are being written. Uh, probably the most uh, preeminent of those is the rise and fall of Marcel with Mark Driscoll, but we have the exposure of Ravi Zacharias, of Bill Hybels, Gordon McDonald, of so many Christian leaders, uh, too many to, to name. Uh, and we see what is happening in the church right now in evangelicalism, and there's a new term called exvangelicals, where people are walking away from the evangelical church. Maybe they're walking away from the gospel altogether, or they're just walking away from the church and they still believe these things, but they can't figure out how to be a Christian in the church. And so we experience anxiety for ourselves because we're concerned that those same things could happen in our church, that they might happen to me or Andy, that they might happen, we might have a toxic culture in our church. And we, we worry about that for ourselves, but we really worry about it for our children because we wonder what kind of a Christianity, what kind of a church are we going to hand off to them? What's going to come, what's it going to become of the church of Jesus Christ in the United States? And so we experience anxiety, and I want to go ahead and normalize that for you. Every single person in this place today, if you're watching online, you have experienced anxiety. You've probably experienced in the last week 
you probably experienced it this morning. And yet we have a God, we have the Lord Jesus Christ who tells us in Luke 12, 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for the heavenly Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. He says also in Matthew 6, 24 and following, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a God who wants to give us rest. He really wants to ease our anxiety. Think about him on the boat with the disciples. He wants to calm the storm in your life. But even as I say that, I recognize that you're looking at me and you're thinking, it's not surprising to me, pastor, that you would tell me that Jesus wants to take away my anxiety and that he's capable of doing that. That is an altogether unsurprising thing for a pastor to say. What would be much more surprising to you would be that if Jesus would actually take a huge dent in your anxiety quotient, maybe even make it go away, maybe even enable you to experience the strength and power of the gospel in a way that would take away your anxiety. But I want to suggest something to you about anxiety that is actually potentially a a life-changing thought, and it's this. Maybe your anxieties are a gift to you. Maybe they're a gift to you. Why? Well, we're told that if you have everything, if you if you have enough money in the bank, if you have if you, if you have a if you get married and you have kids and you you have enough in life and you have a good job and, and all of that, then ultimately one day you're going to reach a point where you're not going to experience any of that anxiety anymore, that if you have enough stuff in your life and you fill your life up and you have enough friends and whatever that is on your list, then one day you're not going to experience anxiety. We're taught that you can deal with anxiety apart from God. But it's actually not true. Your anxieties, no matter what you have or who your friends are or where you live or what car you drive, you're anxious. And that points you to something that you need that goes far beyond material wealth far beyond anything else in this world, you need to depend on the Lord. Listen, we are finite. This world is utterly broken. The fall has devastated this world. And we are living in that world. And so we have anxieties. And those anxieties that we have are an opportunity. Every time you feel anxious, it's an opportunity to say, Lord God, this is how much I need you. This is where I need you in my life. It's an opportunity. But I have an anxiety as a pastor. I have an anxiety, and it's this. And it's illustrated well in a movie called Gravity, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. It's one of these movies where they're going out into outer space, and then something goes wrong on the mission, and the rest of the movie is about trying to figure out a way to get back to planet Earth safely. There's a number of them. But in this particular movie, Sandra Bullock's character, Ryan, reaches a point of total desperation. And she believes she's going to die that day. And she breaks down and she says something powerful but awful as she gives up all hope and she prepares to die. She says, I'm going to die. Everyone dies, but I'm going to die today. No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. I've never prayed. Nobody ever taught me how. And I have an anxiety as a pastor 
that as you face your anxieties in life, and one day maybe you face deep and desperate anxiety, that no one will have ever taught you how to pray. How do you pray when you're anxious? Well, this passage, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, perfectly fits for us in a moment of anxiety. How do we pray when we're desperate? How do we pray when we're anxious? Where is the Lord in the midst of that? There's three parts to this prayer. First of all, you have the approach. How do we approach God in prayer? You have the request. What do we ask of God in prayer? And then you have the confidence. How do we know that God cares and will answer us when we pray? So first of all, the approach. And Paul starts out, he says, for this reason. And every time you read that in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, well, what came before this? Well, he says, for this reason, preceding this passage, this, this part of the, of the letter to the Ephesians, it's been all about God's grace. The first part of, of that is, it goes from 1-3 to 2 um, sorry, 2.10. It's about the gospel that comes to individuals. It comes to us personally. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. God makes us alive in Jesus. And then he gives us all these blessings. And so it's the gospel of grace for individuals. And then he transitions in verse 11 in chapter 2, and he starts talking about how the grace of God builds a new man, one new reconciled man out of Jew and Gentile, every tongue, tribe, and nation. All the saints come together, a bunch of individuals collected into Jesus Christ. And so we learn that Jesus died for a multicultural church. And then beginning of chapter 3, you realize Paul is saying this is a great mystery. We never thought God was going to do this that he would reveal his grace to us as individuals, and he would create a new community of grace. And so Paul says, for this reason I'm praying. I'm praying because of the grace that has come to us from God. And he's praying that we will learn how to live in that grace, that we'll learn how to anchor and ground and establish our lives individually and corporately in the grace of the gospel. So he says, for this reason, and he says, I bow. I bow. Now, to bow, particularly in the ancient Near East, people didn't bow when they prayed. This is uncommon. They didn't get on their knees when they prayed. They stood up and they prayed in the front of the assembly. But Paul is saying something different. He's saying, I bow. I get on my knees. And when you get on your knees, whether you're in the ancient Near East or you're here today in 2021 in Cary, North Carolina, it means that you're serious. It means that you're desperate. There is no one posture you have to pray in. You can pray walking. I love to walk and pray. But when I get on my knees, I don't get on my knees that often to pray. But when I do, I am, I am in need. And I bet you are too. And so Paul is saying that when we come, we come humbly before God. We're desperate. We're desperate for God to work. Jesus prayed on his knees in the garden. Lord, if you would take this cup from me. Stephen prayed on his knees when he was being martyred, as he was looking up into the throne of God. Jesus knows what it's like to be on his own knees. Jesus has knees. He got down on them in the garden, and so he knows what it's like to meet those who get down on their knees in a moment of humble desperation. He says, for this reason I bow before the Father. This is the same Father who in Ephesians 1 gave out every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the same father on the road in the parable of the two sons that is on the road 
just waiting to dole out his blessings on his child when he comes home from being lost in a far country. This is a God, this is a father who loves to bless his children. And and Paul is praying desperately before this father. He says, from whom every family on earth is named. That's an interesting phrase, but what that means is that God is the father of all mankind. That he is the creator of humanity. He actually then becomes, the, the son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a human being. And so we have a God who uniquely, because he created us, it says in Psalm 103 that God, he created our frame, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame, and Jesus Christ himself became a human being and took on. I tried to time it better than that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. That was a little bit loud. That was amazing. Um, Jesus took on our frail humanity, and so we have a God who empathizes with us in our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows our desperation, and he cares for us. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you. And this is the idea of a king, this idea of granting is this king who has everything at his disposal, and he is there. It's like going into the throne room as a little child, as a child of the king, and asking him a request that is actually important to him because he loves you, but it's actually quite easy for him to grant the answer because he's the king and he has all resources. In the book we're reading in our community groups right now, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. There's a concept that I hope you're getting. I hope you're in community group or a Bible study or something where we're going through this book, or I hope you're just reading it on your own. But something that's brilliant in this book is this, is that God, and, and it, it, it really is mind-blowing, and I have a hard time really believing it, not theologically, but existentially, that God doesn't turn us away in our weakness. In fact, God is attracted to weakness, that he actually loves to draw near to us when we are desperate, when we're humble. He says, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I suggest to you that he's not saying that in a condescending way. And in a way like, I wish you didn't need me, but if you do, then come. No, it's, I want you. I want you to come. I want you to be with me. There's a part of me that still wonders, will God really receive me if I come to him for help? But we're assured over and over again that he will. I have realized recently that I would make a terrible Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or any kind of faith that requires you to be good or strong or to perform on your own. Like I just, I can't imagine walking through hard times in life and feeling the pressure of performance so that God would love you, so that he would do something. I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a world where I had to perform for God in order for him to care about me. And the beauty of the gospel is that I don't need that. I don't have to do it that way. I can be humble and be real and experience the love of God in weakness, and so can you. So that's the approach. We come humbly on our knees to this God of grace. Second, the request, 
the request. In this section, the middle section, it's like a staircase, John Stott suggests, where we're walking up four stairs in a row. The first stair in the case is step one is strengthened with power. He requests that, he, that the Ephesians be strengthened with power. This comes from the Greek word dunamis, which means to invigorate, means to, um, it's to apply the force of God in our lives. It's the same word used to describe a miracle of God when he raises Lazarus from the dead or one of these miracles. It is the power of God at work where it says in the inner man. That's what we need when we're anxious is we need God to work in our inner being. We need God to strengthen us, to invigorate us in the inner man or woman. We don't need help with our externals. We need help with our internals, our emotions our heart. And so Paul prays they would be strengthened with power in the inner man. And then he goes on to say, well, how's that going to happen? He says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in verse 17. Now this word dwell, it may be a a surprising turn of phrase for you because you're thinking, wait, I thought these people were already Christians. This is the Ephesian church, right? Well, yes, they are already Christians. This is not talking about someone becoming a Christian. This is talking about a Christian who knows the Lord, but God not coming to, uh, coming to reside with them like a guest or like in an Airbnb situation, but like to actually dwell, to actually take up residence, to actually settle down and actually begin to move into the house and, and decorate the house and redecorate the life, reshape the life so that the life, the internal life of the Christian looks like God lives there. It's a settling down into following Christ and really knowing his grace. The spiritual strength that we're after, I said force earlier, and because of Star Wars, I just want to clarify, that is not some disembodied force that comes upon someone randomly when they think the right things. No, this is God at work, the power of the Holy Spirit at work, bringing God's power to bear in the life of the individual, the inner man, so that they're able to believe the gospel in in a deeper and greater way, so that our lives begin to characterize more and more as being shaped by the gospel of grace. And that's what we need. If it's physical health or mental health or financial shortfalls, fear of the future, shame of the past, there are certain things that you have going on in your life that you can't just get rid of on your own. You can't just wait for some random force to come and bring them away. No, you need the power of Christ to come into your life to help you believe the gospel of grace, to free you from those things. So that's step one. Step one is this prayer for spiritual strength. Step two is being rooted and grounded in love, also in verse 17. Rooted and grounded communicate security and stability. We need to be grounded in the love of Christ, in the love of Christ. Let's talk about the love of Christ. Love is a confusing concept for us today. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is the English language and its limitations. And you may have heard this before, but if you haven't, actually in the Greek, there are four words for love. There are four words for love. You have storge, which is like your love for a steak. 
or your love for your football team. You, you love them, but it's a different kind of love. It's storge love. And then you have phileo love. Phileo love is the love for a friend, the love for a close friend, a brother or a sister. You love them. It's a certain kind of love. Then you have eros, which we get the word erotic. You have sexual love, love between husband and wife. It's reserved for marriage. It's supposed to be that way, but it's a, it's a unique kind of love that we experience sexually. Well, in the Greek, there was no adequate word to describe the love of Jesus. None of these three words worked, and so they came up with a different word called agape, or agapao, which means self-sacrificing love. It's love that doesn't demand its own way. It's love that gives up itself. It's love that disadvantages itself to advantage others. It's the love that we see in Jesus over and over again, epitomized on the cross. And so they had to invent a new word to describe the love of Jesus Christ. And so what we need is to be rooted and grounded, stabilized and secure in this love of Christ that goes so incredibly low, so low, so that when you are low, you can know that he's already been lower, lower than you, lower than wherever you find yourself. He is a friend of sinners because he took on our suffering. He took on our suffering. And this is the agape love of Christ, and this is the foundation of true spiritual strength. Think about it. We may be tempted to believe we've sinned too much for Christ, but we know he is the Savior of sinners. That's why he came. We may be tempted to believe we're too weak for Christ, but he became weak to redeem us. You may be tempted to believe that your sufferings are beyond the reach of Christ, but he is the miracle worker who wields resurrection power. You may be tempted to think God just doesn't care, but no one cared more, and no one expressed care more than the second person of the Trinity. And so it's the love of Christ that stabilizes and grounds us in our faith and strengthens us in the inner man. So there's an individual aspect to this experience in the love of Christ. In that individual aspect, there is a, there is a, a rational theological belief in that love. You also need to experience that existentially and personally. There's too many people in churches who believe God is love, but have never experienced that love for them personally. They believe God's love generally is true, but for them personally they wonder if it's really true. It is true. And God wants you to experience it. Not to make an idol out of your experience. Don't make it so high that if you're not experiencing Christ and the love of God every second of your life, then you wonder if it's true. That's, that's not healthy. But it's also not healthy to be like, you know what, I'm not sure this whole love thing really applies to me. It does. The love of God is for you personally. But Paul goes on and he says that he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love he says later, with all the saints, so that with all the saints. And so there is an individual aspect of this, but there's also a collective and corporate aspect of this as well. And this flows out of the second part of the first half of the book, where he's saying this grace for you isn't just individual, it's also collective. It's also for you as a body. And part of why Paul is writing this prayer, why is he desperate? He's desperate because he knows that Jew and Gentile are not going to be able to love one another if they don't experience the agape love of Christ, if they don't experience this different kind of love 
that Jesus has for us. And so he prays that we would have strength to comprehend the love of God, not just for ourselves, but for the whole community. And we've felt this in our church and in our nation this year, don't we? We know that there's no number of tweets or blogs or arguments or conversations or um, articles that can be written or texted to someone or no amount of social media posting that can solve the problem of the division between the races. There is literally no way to get it done on our own. Listen, we've tried. We've tried, man. Our, our society is trying so hard to make people united through words, through communicating with each other better. And, I, hey, I'm for trying to do that. But we've got to recognize in the church and in the world today, the answer for racial reconciliation and coming together as one new man in Christ is, is, is really in Jesus. He's the only one that can bring Unity, And I would submit to you, too, that if you can't find unity in the church through the love of God given to broken sinners, then you're not going to find it. This unity across racial lines is going is to come to us as we surrender our rights, not as we clamor to hold on to them. We have to experience the grace of God in the gospel. I'll get back to that in just a minute. But he goes on to the third step where he says, we need to know the infinite love of Christ. I want you to know the boundless or eternal or infinite love of Christ in verse 18. That's the third step in the request. Stott takes us through these dimensions. He says, the breadth of his love, his love is wide enough for all mankind. The length, it's long enough to last for all eternity. The height, it's high enough to exalt Christ to heaven. In the depth, it's deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner. How can we describe the love of Christ? Well, Paul's really trying to. But it's this boundless, self-sacrificing love. Extremely surprising that the second person of the Trinity, and Paul gets into this in Philippians too, that he who had all of God's glory, all of it, he did not consider God's glory a thing to be held onto or grasped, but he made himself nothing. He considered himself nothing. He took the form of a servant made in human likeness. And that wasn't enough. It wasn't just enough to be incarnate as a man. But then he, as a man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient, not just obedient in some way, but he became obedient unto death, even to death on the cross. The very, very lowest very, very lowest. He gave up. He surrendered all of his rights. And the rights he had were actually real rights. <laughs> He's really the son of God. He really had everything. He surrenders all of the real rights that he had, and he gave it up for you and for me that we would be blessed. And so we find a pattern in Christ as we experience his grace that frees us from our sins. We have a pattern that can then lead us into community with one another. Does our culture tell us to surrender ourselves for the sake of others? No, we're told to stand up for our rights every second of every day. And those so-called called rights are often not noble. They're just a justification of whatever we want to be ours. They're not real rights. Our rights are whatever we want. Those are not the same thing as real rights. And we live in a society where we're told, stand up for your rights, which means stand up for whatever you want. 
Basically, we're told, be selfish. That's the best way to protect yourself from hurt, and that's the best way to make something of yourself in this world. Culturally, that is the gospel of our culture. Be self-centered. Don't trust people. Make a way for yourself. Don't sacrifice or surrender your rights. Whatever that means for you, I can't define that for you. The golden rule becomes do unto others whatever is necessary to secure a place for yourself or make yourself great. And that is the opposite of the gospel of grace. That spirit of our age, it's actually a terrible way to build a country. In fact, you really can't build a country on that ethic. As a citizen, my job is to care for myself. I'm I'm speaking sarcastically. My job is to, to, to care for myself and my family and not for anyone else. That doesn't build a country. We're we're called to love our neighbor. That's the only way to make actually democracy work because we all are in this together. And so we're being led down a path that actually breaks down. And Jesus says the new Western way is not the way. He says, I am the way. Instead of defending himself against us, he gives up his life for us and dies for us on a cross. There's a new song. I love Lion and the Lamb. So glad. We sang it this morning. There's another new song I love called Son of Suffering by Maverick City Worship. And here goes the chorus. It says, blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise the one who reached for me. Hallelujah to the son of suffering. I love that chorus. It's amazing. The gospel is amazing. If you've been in church a long time, it's easy to be like, oh man, you know, I've heard this before. The second person of the Trinity became a man and died on a cross for you to have life and grace and freedom so that you don't have to clamor for your own selfishness because you already have in him what you need. You have the love of God. As we go low, he goes lower and meets us in our profound anxieties. This is love that Paul says surpasses knowledge. There's no doubt about that. The fourth step is this, that we'd be filled with the fullness of God. Filled literally means to level up. My cup here, it's halfway full. It means that whatever is lacking in us, Paul is praying that God would fill up. He would would fill up what is lacking, level us up to the top. With all the fullness of God, the fullness of God, this is a grand request. And, And actually, I don't think possible on this side of heaven, but Paul is reaching and he's saying, God, I want you to fill them with everything that you are, all of your love, all of your grace, all your mercy, all your character, all that God is. Certainly in heaven we will experience it. Paul is praying for as much as we can handle on this side of heaven. So my question for you when you're anxious is how similar or different are your prayers from Paul's prayers? Listen, in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we are told, and this is important, and it was in our confession, you should pray for everything. You should. You should pray for everything, everything on your heart, everything. Pray. Ask God for it. But as you pray for everything, don't forget to include this part of everything. (laughs) And it's, God, would you strengthen me with power in the inner man? Would you root me and ground me in the love of Christ? Would you help me understand the infinite love of God which surpasses knowledge? Would you fill me with the fullness of God? Oftentimes when we're anxious, we pray for externals. We pray for our circumstances to get better, and you should pray for that. 
But as you pray for that, pray that God would strengthen you. I, I once served as a missionary in China, and there was a, a team of Koreans on the team that I served with. And we would pray, and at one point after we'd served together for seven or eight months, they said to us, you know, you Americans pray different than we do. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you're always praying for your circumstances to change. And we pray a lot of, a lot of times in Korea. I mean, I'm sure the Koreans pray for that too. But we, they said, we Koreans also pray that God would strengthen our backs so that we can stand up under the suffering that we have been given. That's the prayer. That's the prayer for power in the inner man. God, yeah, I want you to change my external circumstances because whatever's going on, it's really messed up and broken. But I really, I really need, I need you to change my life. I need you to change my heart. I need you to enable me to live differently with these anxieties that I face. They show me, oh God, how much I need you. And so I'm crying out that you would show me in my inner being how much I really do need you, that I would experience your love. So that's the request. And then the confidence, this is the final section. This is uh, Tony Merida, uh, really helped me to see the, the, the structure of this. And there's three questions, the confidence, what? The, qu the first question is, what are we after? And then it's, what we're after is that he is able to do. He is able to do. He is able to do. He's able to do whatever that you're asking of him. He's the king. He says far more, more than you've already asked for, he's able to do. And then he says not just far more, abundantly more. He's calling on all the resources of heaven. He's saying not just abundantly more, more than you can ask or imagine, meaning he is saying, I don't pretend for one second to know, to believe that I know what I need and when I need it at all. And so what I'm asking for is that you would actually do even more beyond what I'm even asking for because I know I need you to do whatever you believe needs to happen because I'm a human being. Here I am, desperate on my knees. I need you to work, God, far more, abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. This is not a God who barely answers requests. It's a God who goes far beyond and meets us in our need. The second question answered here is how. He is able to do, it says, in us. He's able to do it in us. Far more than we ask or imagine in us. That's the prayer. I need you to do it in me. In me. These changes I feel like you're calling me to make in my life, in my marriage, in the way that I raise my kids, in the way that I go about my life, I need you to do it in me, God. There is nothing that God is calling you to that he's not able to supply what you need to change your life. He can change you. This is about God working profoundly in us and all the saints. And then the third question is why? Why does he ask God to do this ultimately? Yes, he's asking because he knows that the Ephesian church needs it, but it's bigger than that. He's asking it. Why is he asking for this? He's asking for it for God's glory. Because here Jesus has died for us, the second person of the Trinity. Here the Father has bestowed all of his love on us, vast beyond all measure, here the Spirit has stirred up within us the, the gifts and the, the understanding and the strength. And so now Paul is praying, God, now you've done all of these things. So now, God, individually and corporately root them and establish them in grace in a way that shows the world that you're really God. 
You've done all this, God. You've done it for us, and you did it for us, but you also did it for yourself. You did it because you're great and you're glorious, and the world really does need to be pointed away from ourselves in a way to someone of true value, true true substance and true worth, and that is God. And so Paul is praying, God, would you be glorified as you work your end game out for your glory in the church? Make us mature in you. So today, if you look at your family or our country, or you look at the church and you're anxious, you can know you have a God who loves you. He's a God who weeps. He's a God who bleeds. You know you have a God. If you're ever like Sandra Bullock and you're in a place where you think this might be your day, how do you pray? Well, you pray, you can go before your God desperate. You go before, you should. You really are desperate. <laughs> if you're honest with yourself, you're desperate. Go before him. And then what are you going to do? You're going to ask God, God, would you strengthen me in my inner man that I would know your love, that I would experience it? that we would know your love and experience it together collectively in the body of Christ. And then you're going to you go before him confidently knowing that he does love you. He's your father in heaven. He's like the king. His child's coming in. And he loves to see you, loves to hear from you, and he loves to grant for you whatever that you need. Let's pray. Lord God, you are able to do immeasurably far more than we can ask or imagine. You're able to do in us for your glory. And so I pray today, Lord, every single one of us, we all struggle at some level with anxiety. And we all, at some level, also really don't know what to do about that. But I pray that you would enable us to come to you in prayer. Enable us to come to you honestly and boldly, not holding back. You can take it. We read the Psalms. You can, you can take our greatest grievances, our hurt, our anger, our frustrations, our resentments. You can take it. I pray that we would give all that to you and that you would meet us and you would take upon yourself all of that stuff in our hearts and you would give us instead strength and power in the inner man that we would be able to comprehend the love of God for us and for your church. Lord God, would you change our lives? Would you do it for your glory? Would you do it for us? Because we need you to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.